Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. It's Sunday, March 15th, 2020. The Ides. The Ides of March. The Ides of March. And we're in Richmond, Virginia. For once our, again. For our famous annual Gompert podcast. So we have with us today David and Cindy Gompert. In Richmond, Virginia. Greetings. Greetings. Hi, folks. And uh, we've been having a lot of fun, eating like crazy. Right, and we've running been, around to cemeteries, right? Seeing and, art, and, seeing plants, you know, and uh, keeping our distance, keeping our distance, keeping our social distance, working our way through the coronavirus period. But so far, so good. I think we've got a, we went off to a very good start. No symptoms yet. No symptoms yet, and we're having a good time. Uh, you know, we don't want to make light about the coronavirus, but uh, there are a couple of things that have come up. You know, we're not going to belabor the news that we've all been hearing at length about. Uh, all the precautions and the like and the possible consequences. I will note that during the week, there was an article called Coronavirus Bandits, which I thought was a little bit unusual. And it turns out the Coronavirus Bandits were two armed men at Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. And they made off uh, with $200,000 cash from the racetrack. Uh, and uh, the reason they went undetected was that they were wearing surgical masks. And uh, what does that mean? That meant that they were wearing masks that hid their faces. And normally, when you wear masks, people look at you kind of suspiciously that maybe you're up to no good. But because of the coronavirus, wearing the masks uh, was not a problem. And they wandered into where they had to go to grab the $200,000 and they got away with it. Now, if they had been wearing balaclavas, <laughs> that would have been too much. <laughs> they, they were very intelligent guys, they had the right kind of masks on. So, there you go. But that, that, that story is topped by the story that David found today. Uh, about one unintended consequence of coronavirus. Well, this really falls into the silver lining category. Um, predictably, the uh, sports high five uh, has been suspended, um, not by the government, but by the athletes themselves who realize the, um, the dangers that attach to getting the high five. I always thought the high five was unnecessary. Now it's not only unnecessary, it's dangerous. But I would like to mention some of the ideas that have actually been implemented and others that um, people have offered, and I myself have one. Um, to replace the high five? To replace the high five. One okay. is wearing gloves. And still doing the high five. And still doing the that's high five with gloves you wear on. gloves. Yeah. That's awful. For yeah. you. Well, on the next one. I mean, it's time-consuming for it's one thing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, another one is uh, uh, high elbows. Instead of high fives, you've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that the fist pump, the fist, fist bump, bump fist does bump. not replace the high five because I find that just as obnoxious, especially when people say, yeah. after okay. doing the fish, All right. fist bump. Um, one a gentleman has suggested that uh, kids come out and bow to each other. Yeah. Oh, I sort of like that. Yeah. Really? I'm thinking of clicking the heels, though. I, 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 it's <laughs> no? so hilarious. Yeah. Right. Hilarious. Yes. And then... Um, you can't do that with tennis shoes. Another possibility, which I find compelling, is doing nothing. Doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm for that. You know, in many ways, this is a curmudgeon's dream. Right? 
all, all you the, said so, it all. <laughs> the social prohibitions, you know, there is finally. A I won't know. take that personal front. As a person. There's no, I was front. really looking at him. Oh, yeah. There's no guarantee these things come back. You know, if you stop doing high fives for six months, there's, there's no no rule that says we're going to get back into and the so high five. And so finally, you, it may have be, run its you won't be considered antisocial. You'll be considered, you I know, am, listen, in good behavior. I'm right there with social distancing. I am the poster boy for social well, distancing. Well, I would, my view is that not only along with the high-fiving, etc. I wish there was some way that we could get particularly football players to quit dancing oh. after they've caught a ball. Yeah. Or, See, and they say that females can't be curmudgeons. It's not, there you go. <laughs> does, dancing, uh, there are people who like that. Does, does patting football players on the butt does that qualify as a violation of social right. distancing? It's a violation in okay. so many ways. <laughs> okay, right. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. Okay. All right, Tamsin, right, take us to a more serious subject, would you please? Well, uh, there was the um, an obituary for J. Seward Johnson Jr. Okay, and uh, this uh, in the in the New York Times um, was. Uh, a, um, uh, uh, I've gotten discombobulated here, sorry. Um, he was part of the famous uh, wealthy Johnson family, right? Okay. Very wealthy guy. But he's famous in New Jersey as an artist, okay? A sculptor. Of course. And, of course, uh, the famous... He did these life-size uh, painted bronzes uh, that looked like they were real people. And so there's a guy sitting reading a newspaper uh, on on the square in Princeton. Right. And so you walking by, and, and I, it seems like a real I have many times done you know? a double take. There's a, over in Hamilton, there's a, a kid on a bike with, uh, you know, just uh, with his uh, parent next to him, you know, kind of holding the bike. You know how when you're just learning right. to right. ride, etc. And you, you you're nervous about that intersection because yeah. you think the kid's going to roll out into the intersection. So anyway, uh, he was a wealthy guy. Um, his first marriage was a bomb. His second marriage, his uh, wife got him interested in art. He wasn't good at painting. And uh, a lot of people say he wasn't good at sculpture either, <laughs> but he did a lot of well, sculpture. Well, of course, all this culminates in the grounds for sculpture. Yeah, he, he buys an old fairgrounds right. in Hamilton, New Jersey, makes it into a sculpture park. Which is an incredibly fun place. It's a fabulous place. You know, that might still be open because when you see the museum's not being open, that is an open-air sculpture garden. And, and you can easily keep social distance. Easily. I mean, you yeah. barely see anybody else. And but you have to keep social distance from the sculptures. That's not no, difficult that's either. Okay. Well, I wouldn't it's, sneeze on the sculptures. But anyway, it's modern sculpture, but it's very accessible. It's a terribly fun place. And, and at night, it's great. Yeah. And yeah. Some would you, of, high, would you yeah. high five? And some of the sculptures are actually recreations of famous paintings well, that's, that's, in 3D, that's right. like Manet's Déjeuner sous l'herbe, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And so it's fun to see those. Not everybody loves them. Uh, what the David Levy of the direct, uh, the director of the Corcoran Gallery in Washington said, Seward is the artist everyone loves to hate. A critic in the Washington Post uh, described him this way, bad art is made every day by tens and hundreds of thousands of well-meaning people, and this is just more of the same. It's not shameful. It just happens to be hideous and dumb. Uh, it, it's, it, it is a really fun place. The grounds for sculpture His sculpture is fun. The creation of this uh, yeah, sculpture. They get all kinds of sculptures. Some there are abstract. There are restaurants there. Are there. Oh, yeah. Um, you guys ought to go. Uh, okay, in Hamilton, New Jersey. Right. 
the grounds for sculpture. Yeah, in all seriousness. Where it's, is Hamilton? It's near Trenton. Okay. And the buildings are great. They're the the old buildings, the old fair buildings, decorated with Mercer tiles. Mm. Oh, I'd love um, to see that. Oh, and, that alone would be And great. some exactly. new exhibition spaces I'm as sold. well. As soon as I have Mercer tiles, I'm on my way. So um, there was an article in the paper about youth coaching. And, you know, it's one of these articles that are not terribly exciting. Strangely, it found its way to the op-ed uh, page as if it was news. I don't think it's really news. Our kids' coaches aren't are doing it wrong. And, uh, Boy, and a lot of people would say that. Yes. Yeah. And it's just to sum up the paragraph uh, that, that I think Cindy highlighted, which I think just sums up the point they're making, that uh, as opposed to being uh, focused on winning in a myopic way, this, this writer says that a good youth coach is one who can reinforce the things that were done right during a competition, regardless of the outcome, and help prepare the athletes for the next event. In other words, make it a positive experience, and they have all kinds of things that you shouldn't do. Uh, and it goes on to talk about how, in fact, that's exactly what many of these youth coaches are doing, the stuff you shouldn't do. And, and look, I have experience as a youth coach, um, and I, I do agree with that. I think, we, you know, a lot of people do lose sight of it. What you want to do is instill in, in the kids who are in your program a love for the game. And uh, if they come away with a love for the game and other associated positive experience, you know, then you've accomplished a lot. Now, it's easier to do that when the team is winning, to be perfectly frank. But you can't lose sight of, you know, other objectives. But I know you guys, uh, Christian, uh, your son a is son a coach. I know he has views on this. He's a, he's a soccer coach at an academy in New Hampshire. And um, he does have views. In fact, he recorded those views in his master's thesis about, about coaching. And um, I think the most important point he makes is that coaches should not lose sight of the fact that they have a huge impact on these kids, right. usually catching them at high school level. And um, it, it follows from that that coaches have a developmental responsibility, which is sometimes in conflict with being concerned only with wins and losses. The third um, is a little bit more subtle, and that is that he has um, implemented the concept of player-centric soccer, uh, which when you think of the coach running up and down the sideline, barking orders at the players, his idea is you prepare the players, they have a voice in how they're going to play the game and the, and the positions they take and everything, and then you let them play. Yeah, I mean, particularly during a game, because I found you can't coach during a game. The right. kids are too wrapped up in what's going on, right. and the dumbest thing is when you hear some guy yelling at kids during a game, they can't possibly internalize that information. <laughs> yeah. It's just beyond the pale. But, you know, I actually think it's even... You know, the age thing you mentioned, it, it's tricky. So I'm, what did I coach? I didn't coach a sophisticated way that Christian did because I did travel teams, whatever, but like 10 to 14, right? So Christian, mm -hmm. I, I presume a little bit older than that, right? But in my mind, these kind of values apply not only to Christian, obviously, in, in high school. He obviously believes that. I think they apply in college. I mean, I've had kids who play college sports, and I'm sitting there saying, really? Really? We're coaching that way? You're playing, you know, an obscure, you're playing some water polo game, which you think is the end of all time, yeah. but it's kind of obscure in the big picture. I understand when there's a close game, but sometimes they're not close. There are all kinds of things going on, and these coaches are coaching like it's the NCAA finals when yeah. they're down by five goals or they're up by six goals. And it's, it's crazy. And it's about the coaches. Yeah, yeah. It's not about the players. And I do think, uh, and I'm saying to myself because I have a, a you know, son or a daughter on the team, I'm saying, how can you lose... 
all kinds of perspective on this. It's, it's to make this a certain kind of experience, not even necessarily positive, but to make an experience to get everybody to participate. Yeah. So I feel that it even applies to college, honestly. Yeah, but winning can be important. I, I'm all for winning. I mean, it, it, all... It's striking that balance between striving yeah. for personal excellence and, and uh, improving. But one thing that's interesting to me is you used to say it's uh, much uh, uh, more efficient. The efficient way to make a team better is to raise the level of play of the lesser players. Yes, uh, that was and always to my theory. On the superstar, yeah, yeah. And, um, right. and and I guess part of doing that is creating that enthusiasm and engagement and mm-hmm. giving the the players the keys to success, yeah. um, helping them with the skills, yep. uh, you know, rather than working out. Well, that's it's, that's exactly right. And Christian has our son has observed that these kids want to win. Right. They like W's better than L's, yeah. right? But rather than demanding that they win, you, you think about what are the qualities right. of teamwork, well, respect, well, and so on, that's going to lead to wins as an outcome. But you know what happens when you raise the level of the, the lesser kids, which, is, which you can do more easily than the star kids, honestly, because they have so much to learn. And some of them do become stars, honestly. People overlook them. But when you raise their level, everyone in the team can play. And if you have a team where everyone can play, it's a tremendous uh, boost yeah. to teamwork and team spirit. And it's also everyone, an advantage. Yeah, and it's an advantage. Kids get hurt. You can right. Whoever you put in can do what they can do. Uh, it does, it does, nothing drops off in terms of level of play. So yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's a key thing. Um, and, 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 and the college coaches, I've seen college coaches who miss that entirely. Um, Patino, okay. for example. Patino. Patino. <laughs> I just hope he gets back in the game. That's all I can say. Uh, you had something on tiny dollhouses, which we're dying to hear about. I did. This is not exactly my bailiwick. But no, I think it is your bailiwick. It is. Okay. You're interested well, in dollhouses. Well, you're, you're an art-sensitive guy. And a dollhouse guy. I'm a, a sensitive guy. I don't know about the art business. But, <laughs> you know, there's been a big movement toward tiny houses. Right. And tinier and tinier right. houses. To live in. Yes, but... A lot of people are frustrated because the tiny houses are so tiny that they don't have the opportunity to give um, their decorative expression full uh, range. So they've started doing that by making doll houses. It's the extreme version of tiny houses. And the doll houses um, have become quite a a fad. Uh, recently, they found that 1.65 million posts in Instagram hashtag dollhouse and 4.3 in hashtag miniature. Uh, so you can see sort of the wave of enthusiasm and participation for these dollhouses. And they are done with exquisite detail and really fine uh, taste and style. But unfortunately, they're becoming more expensive than the actual houses. Um, <laughs> to make or to people make. buying them? People are buying them. Uh, so one fella has sold his dollhouses uh, for between 150000 mm-hmm. and 250000 apiece. Yeah. So, you know, for that... The works of art. For that, you could get an actual doll. An actual, actual house. house. An actual, yeah. You could even... It would even have... It wouldn't even be tiny, would it? It, it wouldn't. It you wouldn't could get be tiny. A, a pretty good-sized uh, house. Not, yeah, not, not a rich. You know, yeah. I think that um, that whole 
creating miniatures goes in and out of uh, style, doesn't it, Cindy? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. There's that famous uh, dollhouse at the Museum of the City of New York um, that everybody goes to see. And, it, and there was that it, uh, famous one at the Smithsonian. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think when I was growing up, dollhouses were very in. You know, trying to make... I had a, actually my um, father's cousin, Jeannie, used to... She would recreate rooms in her house and antiques that she owned in miniature uh, to put in the dollhouses. So, I mean, you know, that keeps people We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Maybe you could try that, Dave. If this whole pottery thing pulls through. (laughs) Yeah. If you run out of bowls to make. Well, if I run out of bowls, it'll be your fault because you keep snatching up bowls. Every time Let me tell you here. something. We we don't have a car big enough to really stem the tide in any meaningful way. Uh, so, Tamsin, you had uh, yeah. This I thought this was interesting. The thing about uh, yes, these, well, you know, museum updates. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And of course, museums. Uh, it's a struggle at the moment because uh, many museums are closing um, because of the uh, virus concerns. But uh, here was an interesting article in the New York Times this week about the Instagram account of the Prado. And uh, they, the Prado has a series of videos uh, in, on Instagram that are proving to be real hits. And they're done by the, you know, the Instagram uh, director, who's a young guy, he's 37 years old, and he wanders around with his cell phone and makes these rather casual videos the ones that have been the big hits are interviews that he does with various members of the staff. You know, the, what they call the front of the house right. staff. The workers. Uh, the workers. Yeah. The art handlers. Right. And, but uh, they, know, also, they know the art. And also the conservatories. Right, right. So it's not right. so unusual to have interviews with a curator or whatever. But the conservators, who can be just rather shy, quiet, hardworking people... Uh, seem to come alive when they're actually talking about their work. And also, uh, there's one star of the arts handlers, uh, Manolo Asuna, who uh, is quite interesting to hear him talk about some of the art he has spent time with and uh, really reveres. So these are becoming very popular. At the moment, they're mostly in Spanish. So I recommend them to our Spanish listeners <laughs> and our Spanish-speaking listeners, and I know we have some. Or learning um, Spanish for your English. Yeah, or learning Spanish. That yes. Uh, so um, that's a, a nice uh, uh, way to go to the museum uh, when you're um, But you'd hope that some observing. other museums would pick up on this and do some in English, right? Yeah. Well, you know, museums do have videos, yeah. uh, but very often they're kind of... Um, Wooden. Boring. Yes. Wooden, yeah. uh, highly this, intellectual. This sounds like it's a much the, better take on this it. This is... What, Cindy what I, will tell you yeah, that some I, of the guards you deal with yeah, in well, museums... What, what I want to add to that is that there are so many people working behind the scenes uh, doing beautiful, beautiful work, and they never get any credit they're, they're they're not brought onto the spotlight and they're usually not making very much money mm-hmm. at right. the museum particularly and uh i think it's just fabulous because but it also gives young people an idea of careers mm-hmm. which yeah. are usually hidden right right so, no that's yeah. right i think it's great i do too uh yes yeah, spanish we all have to learn spanish um so max van saito died uh and uh, Max von Sydow is kind of an interesting figure. I mean, look, and Tamsin and I, um, in college, right, right. 
together, saw the seventh seal. And uh, the seventh seal, just to sum up, because it's elegantly summed up in the paper in the obit, uh, Mr. Von Saito played Antonio Splock, a strapping medieval knight who returns from the Crusades to his plague-ravaged homeland only to encounter the stern, ghostly, pale, black-hooded figure of death to stave off the inevitable block challenges death to a game of chess. And in the long intervals between moves, he searches the countryside for some shred of human goodness. It is, you know, a stunning film, a stunning black and white film. It's, it was riveting. Didn't you find it riveting? No. Oh, okay. No, but I know you did, and I was very nervous um, seeing it with you because, well, here's this cool guy who thinks this. Uh, oh, really? You know, <laughs> I had no idea. He was into these really cool movies. You know, it was no sound of music. <laughs> now I found oh, out. And I, oh, my God. I was God. highly intimidated. I said, you know, I'm never going to get this uh, art film thing. And uh, <laughs> so, so how are, how are relationships... You know, um, we overcame that. the Max von Sydow effect. Did, did you guys see Seven no, Seals? No, no, see right oh no, the Seven Seals is one of the great films in my mind, and I'm not. A I film might be critic. able to understand it now, but as a young goofy, freshman, uh, it's it's worth seeing, even if you don't like it. Uh, but the thing about, Bur- about Max von Sydow is uh, he was a figure, and he would. Uh, there's a limit to what you can do in Swedish movies, uh, and he made quite a few. With, I'm not what with Ingmar there's a Bergman. Limit to what you can do in Swedish movies? They don't have that much. There. As I understand it, there's no limit to what you can do in Swedish <laughs> yeah, movies. Yeah, there is that. But... I'll tell you what you can do in Swedish movies. <laughs> in any event, he worked with Ingmar Bergman and Jan Troll, but he always felt he wanted to have a career in Hollywood. Now it sort of widened his horizons, and they never knew what to do with him in Hollywood. He was, you know, a, a recognizable figure. He always had quite stern visage. Uh, the closest he came to a really popular movie was The Exorcist, in which he has played some priest who was a master at exorcism, which tells yeah. you how much range they allowed him to yeah, play. Yeah, all the internet blurbs I saw that announced his death was said about the star of The Exorcist yeah. and Game of Thrones. Yeah, I wouldn't even call him a star, but he was, he was in The Exorcist. And he was always played a, a serious yeah. uh, serious guy, and which to, much to his frustration. So, <laughs> in a certain sense, you always felt, I should know more about him. He must. I know he's been in those alien movies, but he kind of wasn't. And uh, he was in one or two really momentous films. But in Hollywood, they just didn't know how to cast him. But in any event, he was a great figure and it's a great movie. If nothing else, we get a lot of people to seek out The Seventh Seal. I feel it was well, worth bringing it up. He was important enough because I knew about the name. Yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And I'm sure David does too. All right. uh, so anyway, Speaking we, of things we've been trying to get to the, uh, the snowdrops uh, uh, piece. Well, the, We're just I in biding time. We've had strange weather here in the east. It's been a very mild winter, and um, it's, it's gotten warm early, so flowers are exploding. And I have to say that in uh, our yard in Lineport, um, the uh, snowdrops are just massive and so well they're they're in the wall street journal there's an article about snowdrops on the rise uh and that there's a mania for them which uh goes back to the tulip mania many years ago that suddenly really? they become very valuable and just uh as you can listen to this description about uh the brits the paths are thronged with gardeners in muddy wellies and downy coats cinching their scarves against the winter chill. Couples huddled together, noting the minuscule differences in their gardening journals. And as I sloshed around, I began my own snowdrop wish list. 
So the snowdrop is a little, it's a short little flower. It comes it out blooms in very time. early, yes. and it's this little white uh, petal. Sounds like a lily of the valley or something. No, no. no but No, the, it's just one, it's you, one flower. You, you couldn't be, stem. couldn't be more wrong. But the <laughs> incredible thing here is that they're actually, they're actually 350 varieties of snowdrops. Can you Get list them here. all for us? No. Just give us 50. But off the top it of says head. here, this is according to the person who wrote the article, a friend of mine had recently confided he'd spend over $100 on a single tiny bulb. Oh! But, but then That's it says, crazy. One need only to dip a toe into the world of snowdrops, though to discover the galanthrophile, an enthusiastic, often eccentric collector and grower of the snowdrops. This type of gardener is thick on the ground in Britain. But it also mentions here that there is a... There is a snowdrop called the Elizabeth Harrison with its golden ovary have sold for well over a thousand dollars for a single bulb on eBay. Right. There you have it. So now I, uh, hold on. Oh, this sorry. Fever is spreading in America too with specialist nurseries importing rare cultivars from England. I have something to say about the snowdrop craze. I see that it's in the design and decorating section of the Wall Street Journal. I did not know there was such a section. Mm. But it won't be long before it appears on the financial pages as the snowdrop bubble. The snowdrop bubble. I think that, it's that I actually think you know, it's just you're the making a joke, but the tulip mania people did. You know, they sold. It was a bubble. It was a bubble. But it's tremendous. But David, David you, you shouldn't be giving financial. Like the snowdrops will be featured in the Wall Street Journal as a haven to invest your money, given what's going on with the stock market. You're making my point. Exactly. <laughs> the market got to get in the snowdrops now. The hedge funds, watch them. They're going uh, I'm in. I'm telling you, $1,000 is cheap. These right. things are going up. Okay. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. That or dollhouse. That's right. So, yes, uh, David. It's bone fragments, David. Well, here's my, the question. Yeah. What is the When question? could a handful of, and how could a handful of skull fragments lead to a major international geopolitical development. I give up. Okay. Um, I would have given up too had I not read this article. Uh, an important friend and close uh, lieutenant of Napoleon named General Charles Etienne Goudin accompanied Napoleon on his ill-fated invasion of Russia in 1812. Um, the good General Gaudin, <laughs> we just had some snowdrops superior, so we're, we've raised the stakes. Be careful; right. these are very valuable. Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, the good General Gaudin uh, had his leg blown off at a battle in western Russia, near the city of Smolensk. And um, when he had his leg blown off, he um, uh, became very ill and died three days later, whereupon they removed his heart, and as Napoleon retreated with what was left of Le Grand Army, he took his friend Goudin's heart with him back to Paris, where it is buried in Les Envolides, not far from Napoleon himself. Well, recently the Russians discovered some skull fragments, which they believed might have been those of General Goudin. Really? So they invited a French um, archaeologist uh, who came, checked them out, and sure enough, the DNA revealed 
I guess they did the heart and then they did the bone, the skull fragments, that these were indeed the skull fragments of General Goudin found in Russia. So when Emmanuel Macron heard about this, he thought whoever the, I mean, the, the, the great uh, opportunists of European politics these days, he thought here lies an opportunity for a major uh, development in Franco-Russian relations and in East-West relations at a pivotal time. So he invited Putin, yes, Vladimir Putin, to join him in a grand funeral in September in Paris where the skull fragments from General Goudin will be buried not far from his heart and not far from Napoleon. <laughs> But the significance of this is that Macron sees this as a great opportunity, first of all, to promote Macron, right. which is his principal purpose in being president of France. Secondly, to promote France, which he's trying to position as the leader of Europe, um, now that Angela Merkel is, is uh, retiring. It's also to... Um, end the isolation of Russia and of Putin. Why Macron thinks that's a good idea, I don't know. I don't think it is. But he also now sees an opportunity where, under the leadership of France and of Emmanuel Macron, the, uh, the Cold War, the new Cold War in East-West relations between Europe and Russia, at least, can be ended because of this great ceremony. Putin, on the other hand, sees this as an equally important opportunity to show not only that Russia is, is still a very influential power, but also a virtuous power. Because mm -hmm. they're being so nice to give having, back the bones. Having given back. So we can see this, uh, particularly with the Americans, not on the scene. We can right. see this as an important moment. People yeah. may look back on this as an important moment in European-Russian relations with the Americans fat, dumb, and happy sitting back in I mean, do you Washington. agree with that or are you just being facetious? I'm being facetious. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you I was know, wondering where this story even, was going. I mean, how do the French feel about Napoleon at the moment? Is there anybody in France who cares about this or is this just the um, French, photo op between all, the, the French two leaders? always feel good about, about Napoleon. Napoleon. Okay. Yeah, but but right. somewhat regretful about the invasion of Russia, which, as you know, didn't go well. Somewhat yeah, regretful. Right. They so, have their uh, moments. Every some once in a while, someone Salt says, in the wound? Or, yeah, yeah. I don't know. When, when uh, finally thing. in exile at St. Helena, Napoleon was asked, what were you thinking when you invaded Russia in 1812? And he said, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> No, he said it in French. He said it in French. It probably sounds a lot better in French. Yeah. Uh, je <laughs> a lot funnier, at least. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so finally, we just wanted to reflect for a moment, since we're all, uh, to some degree, uh, housebound uh, under this social distancing regime, uh, about uh, streaming and shows we're watching, or might be watching, uh, to uh, pass the time. And uh, the Gompers were nice enough to present to us a very long list of uh, some of the things that they recommend. And we have a couple 
uh, of our own. But uh, why don't you start, uh, David? Why don't okay. you give us a line? Tell us why you recommend it. What uh, have you been watching on the small screen? Just, just uh, we've been we've been you watching we've us. been watching Fauda, which is Palestinian right. Israeli interaction on the West Bank. And very so is good. that serious or is that? In, oh, it's serious. It's very, very serious. serious. It's based but, on, but I mean, is it it's based engaging? on real life? Oh yeah. yeah. Yes, it's yeah. gritty. It's raw. I, it's I've political. But it's F A U D A. F A U D A. Yeah. Occupied the sort of gradual occupation of Norway by Russia, starting with Norwegian oil and gas fields in the North Sea, the uh, European Union is on the side of Russia because Russia says, we are going to start pumping gas again. Norway has stopped because of uh, is, climate is, is change. Is this a documentary or is this a... No, no, it's it a is. It's, it's, it's a very right. serious series about what could happen. The Americans being very isolationist, they said... You know, we don't really care about this. So, And it's how the Norwegians resisted, at least some of them, resisted Russian occupation. Then there's Longmire, 63 episodes, 63 of, episodes. Of, a, of a sheriff in, uh, this is contemporary, in Wyoming. Which what it was, I forget. We strongly recommend. Spiral. Have you watched all 63? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Well, you can't help it. Okay. Maybe. All right, well, let's Longmire. know. We're writing these down. Yeah. Go, go, go. Uh, Spiral. Uh, which is French. Dan, subtitles? You're okay with French subtitles? Well, I, I prefer just listening to the you French. You prefer English subtitles, no, I actually. Like, you know. I, I find it loses something if I don't concentrate right. on the French. <laughs> Broad Church, great. Wait, and what is Spiral about? Spiral is about uh, uh, drug lords and combating drug... You guys are laughing yeah. a minute. Is that contemporary I mean, is in, in France? Uh, also? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Absolutely. All right. All right. So it takes place in France? I think it's Ungarage is the name of yeah. it, which is... Where does it take place? Paris. In Paris. Yeah. Okay. Broad uh, Church. Broad Church is about... Um, it's crime solving. It's crime solving. Who crime killed... Year. I mean, it's a classic British... We, we saw the first year. You with, did? With yeah, David with the, Tennant. With the anti-hero... Yeah, uh, David Tennant has sort of a heart condition, and he's working with the woman who won the Oscar. The woman who yes. won the Oscar. It's a name yeah. we don't remember. Um, what's her name? Olivia. For, uh, and she who is now playing Elizabeth II in, in the throne. In the throne. Yeah, yeah but the, the just crown. to pause on David Tennant, I didn't mean to mention this. So there, the, the the, one of the papers the did the crown. The one of the papers did mention some podcasts that you might listen to. And apparently, David Tennant, who's a great actor, has an excellent podcast. In which he interviews other English actors, including like really? Ian McKellen and people like that, and they right. recommend it. Let's make a note of that. Yeah, uh, The Wire. Most people have already seen many, many episodes, and it's about wiretapping in East Baltimore yeah. um, by sort of the gang that couldn't shoot it's, straight, it's, the right. gang that yeah. couldn't yeah. listen straight. That. That's yeah. uh, Barry Levinson, right? Yes, okay. it's terrific. It's really uh, gritty yeah. and raw. That's raw, considered as, one of the great shows. As East Baltimore is Friday Night Lights, improbably. You will become addicted to four or five seasons mm-hmm. of Friday Night Lights, which is about high school football mm-hmm. in Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you. And one other one I want to suggest. I don't know if you can find it or not, but there's a wonderful uh, documentary out about Molly Ivins. It sounds know, familiar. Yeah, it's cooking, she, I'm thinking of. No, no. What's no, Molly Ivins? She was a political writer. Oh, okay. And, oh, no, I know Molly Ivins. Yes, yeah, sure. Texan. Texan. She passed away just within the last few years. Though. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Amazing woman. Uh, and I recommend it to everybody. I don't. We saw. I didn't it think at, she was that old when she passed. No. Fifties or sixties. Yeah. yeah. She yeah. was. Uh, I saw it at an art cinema up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Okay. But she was marvelous. Yeah. 
Oh, All right, so out. we had a, a couple shows to recommend, but they're not nearly as serious as yours. Um, <laughs> but that's we're not that serious people. We we're are, older. Tamsin, you mean like Horton hears the who? No, no, God, <laughs> Tamsin, do you want to mention? No, something? I, we, we we've mentioned this many well, times. We'll mention it again because we, yeah, we uh, can't be shown up by the Gompers here. We were in there. We already were. <laughs> yeah. we, we we never watched the history. Uh, well, let me so. let me mention one thing uh, <laughs> off the uh, well. First of all, just to listen, there's sex education, which is, is really uh, excellent, and it takes place somewhere, some mythical place in the UK. You'll love the setting. The yeah, sets, it's the beautiful. The fantastic. And uh, the, what you should know about that, it was recommended by uh, Zeke, our son, so it's mm-hmm. nice when your son recommends a show you called Sex Education, which is as explicit as this is. <laughs> there's... Um, Shit's Creek? Shit's Creek. Now, Shit's Creek, the only thing about Shit's Creek is uh, the Times had an article recently about... Uh, what kind of shows you might watch. Uh, and they make a point of saying sometimes the pilot is is misleading. There are a lot of these shows, the pilot's not so great. And how do you decide whether you're going to stick with it or not, whether you're going to invest the time? And their recommendation is, well, just even if the pilot's not so great, think whether you'd like spending time with those people. Think like you're spending time with those settings. No. In, in no. Our, no. <laughs> never. In our case, no. our kids all, they rarely agree. Yeah. On, on anything, and they all agreed we have to watch it, and it's great. <laughs> but but you got to get past the first. The season. shows you recommended to us, yeah, all of them. The first from the first episode, you loved it, or did it take you a while to get into any of those? It. it I mean, I know you're on a average. It takes a nerd. little while. Yeah. Uh, but but when we will vouch for these shows, okay. yes, yeah, stick with it. Yeah. The one show where you were completely hooked after the first two minutes. Yeah. yeah. Was Breaking Bad. Well, we didn't watch Breaking Bad, but I can tell you the one show we were hooked at the first five minutes, and that was yeah. Bodyguard. Hmm. Did you remember that one, Tim? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that was very popular in the UK, uh, so it's but not so an what, obscure hold, show. Hold on. Let's back up. You not watched Breaking Bad? No. Huh. No, we're extremely busy people. I, yeah, and well, you can now, though. Fully employed. Yeah. You can Actually, now, you know, because you're not fully employed, and besides, you have... It's to only have... recently that we're watching more of the small screen. That's right. Yeah. Well... Yeah. Because it's become so fantastic. And we did see... Breaking Bad. Okay, so but we did see... 15 seconds. We did see Brian Cranston in Network, and he was fantastic. Oh, he was. Was he? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. he was great. Yeah, look, so we we, we mentioned Mrs. Maisel before. I know uh, Cindy said it's not her favorite. It's not for everybody, but I actually... The longer we watch, the less we like her. Yeah, it's it's not for everybody. It's a little sophisticated. Uh, And... uh, Yeah, a little. And there's... uh, Mozart in the Jungle, which I perhaps Mozart like. Mozart in the Jungle? Have you never seen that? No. A Mozart in the Jungle, I think you, you, you two will really enjoy it. And it. It's based on the memoirs of an oboe player. Right. And who's oh, in like but the that fictional... Doesn't, that doesn't tell you a thing. New York Symphony Orchestra. It's about the classical music scene, but it's kind of funny and it's serious at the same time. There's a lot of wonderful music. Malcolm McDowell is, is one of the key players oh, cool. in it it's, as an older temperamental conductor. Uh, and... Uh, I think you really like it. In the Jungle or On the Jungle? Mozart, In the Jungle. Yeah. And and in terms okay. of other TV shows, which I guess are streaming now that we love, you know, I like Justified maybe a little more than Tamsin, but Justified is perhaps like Longmire, which is a, a Western, Timothy Oliphant. Um, it was That's great. based on it's, oh, no, more Letter. A more letter book. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, our favorite show is The Americans. And I'm sure you can stream The Americans, which is about the, the family living next door who's really with the KGB. And since that takes yeah. place in suburban yeah. Washington. And, and, and The know, Americans I, was I, fantastic. I think I can say a, a thing or two about that because it's based on 
uh, reality. Right. Yes, which yes, I it is. Direct involvement. Yeah. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, indeed. So it's a perfect we, show for you. We found these moles. Yeah. They had been there a long, long time. Sure. And we didn't know what to do with them because they were here so long. They had children. This is the real one. Right. Thinking. Yeah. That they had children, and the children were American citizens. Right. Right. Of course, Fourteenth Amendment, whatever. And um, so we could send them back. Well. We could have put them in prison, yeah. but they didn't actually do anything wrong because they were moling for so right. long that they actually didn't spy much. We could send them back, but if we sent them back, we were going to send their children back, their children being American citizens. We could ask their children if they wanted to go back with their parents, but their children were very young, so it was a real dilemma. Yeah, well, that, they, they deal so with when that. when was this? They when, they, how long ago was this? Ten years ago. Yeah. They deal with that at the end of the show. I mean, the show goes on for six or seven seasons. Yeah. It's only at the end that the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. And I, and I, but uh, Well, it didn't fall apart for us because we traded them. Yeah, well, it we fell apart. Them. Being traded is, is like falling apart. Because you have to recognize that they're the protagonists of the show. And perhaps you may regard this a little differently when you're watching it. But most people watch the show find themselves very much interested in the plight of the KGB agents, yeah, uh, they they become quite sympathetic. I, I do think I read recently about one of the children returning not to the U.S. but to Canada within the last few months hmm. uh, yeah, of a similar situation. Yeah, yeah. Very, but in any event, but when you say you traded them, so the, did the family swapped, go back to? We swapped what a does whole that mean? bunch of them. Yeah, to the Russians for some Americans that the Russians had. Right. Yeah, All right. and then the Spy Russians swap. decided what to do with. Well, they're the Russians. They, yeah, they were they, Russians. They, they were Russians. going back to their home country. I know, but the kids are still American. Yeah. 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 Did they want to go? All right. Yeah. But anyway, so... Does anybody the, want to sum this all up? No, yeah. we don't have to sum it all up. I think we've given valuable it, information and insights here. Yes. Which are going to be appreciated around the I world. I just want to add, keep washing your hands. And Spanish speakers in particular. <laughs> Can you say that in Spanish? No. No. Uh, get Spanish on that speakers should keep washing their hands, but so should the rest of us. Yes. <laughs> I think, you know, and by the way, you, I was in the, your your uh, restroom over there. I think some new, more normal soap would be a good idea. Maybe something with a pump. All right. All right. Moving right <laughs> along. So thank you, David and Cindy, for being with us. Thank you for hosting us down here in beautiful Richmond, Virginia, where the food is good. It is. Yes, it is. All right. Thank you. We'll yes, see you next week. Glad to have you. See you in a year.